0: listening to Open Science Talk, the podcast about, well, open science. This is episode 13 and today's guest is historian and university librarian at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, Per Pippen Aspås. And today's topic is the history of scholarly publishing and how it relates to the open science debate today. Per pippen welcome to uh, Open Science
1: Talk. Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Uh, So Per, um, uh, as an historian, um, how do you see the starting point of uh, scholarly publishing? Um, Where did it start and and how did it develop? Well,
1: I think for... Uh, for the sake of brevity, we should start off with, uh, with the printing. Uh, I mean, uh, for sure, there has been knowledge out there and, and scientific uh, research out there since uh, antiquity and earlier than that. But if we start off with the printing being invented in the middle of the 15th century, and then after a while, you have uh, what we call the scientific revolution, which is mainly associated with the 17th century. Then you have printing, then you have Publishers that publish books and some of these books are really controversial because they are uh, groundbreaking stuff that I would take that as a starting point for scientific publishing in, in, in the way we think of it. You have books. And after a while, you also have journals with scientific content.
0: That's a good starting point. And, and how did the um, business side of it look like back then? Was there a publisher who published it? And did I do it for money or did I do it for other ideals? Uh, how was the landscape back then?
1: Well, you had um, you had lots of uh, printings. Houses attached to uh, universities, and after a while, also scholarly societies that had their own uh, printing houses. These were not publishers in the independent sense; they they were run by the, the scholarly community themselves. You also had as a supplement, and an early supplement, um, you had the the um, the, uh, the independent publishers, but most of those were. Very, very small uh, companies, if you can even call them that it was a family business usually. and if the man uh, died then the, the the widow would take over so it would have the same family name and and then after she died, perhaps the son took over or um, but often they um, they just stayed there for a generation or two and then they just disappeared. So it wasn't like today when you think of them as sort of impersonal, uh, entities like huge, um, commercial publishing houses for sure. They didn't exist in the 17th, 18th centuries.
0: So how was the distribution back then? Uh, who read the, the articles?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, but an important question, uh, in general terms, um, today we don't have any Illiteracy. I mean, everybody can read in principle in what we call the Western world, between very huge uh, quotation marks, uh, the Western world is literate. Uh, back then it wasn't. I mean, there were huge parts of society that hardly could read and certainly not able to read a, a intellectual piece of work uh, as a scholarly text is and always was. So the distribution was mainly uh, to other uh, colleagues, other scholars, and uh, an educated uh, elite. Often the nobility, you would have people within the nobility that were interested in in modernization, in new ideas, and they would um, be consumers of books. Um, and also the funders often of scholarly books, because uh, if you wanted to publish a proper book with a private publisher, you often needed funding. Um, As today, you need often, at least in small uh, language uh, communities like the Norwegian one, where we have uh, four million million speakers, then you often need some sort of funding to have a non-commercial scientific book put out. Um, And that's how it was uh, back then as well.
0: So where did it change uh, from uh, these small publishing houses to the large ones we see today?
1: Well, it was a long process, but usually people describe it in general terms that the private publishers were supplements to the publishing systems that were run by the scholars themselves. Because as I said, universities had their own printing presses and still many of them are out there and important ones today as well, but they were not commercial back then. They were, they were small and and they printed limited numbers. And also you had uh, scholarly societies, the most famous ones are the Académie des Sciences and the Royal Society of London. Um, These published uh, generally, on a regular basis, they published um, uh, their periodicals. But these were periodicals not so much meant for sale often. Um, They were often meant just to exchange between other scholarly societies. Uh, And this system persisted uh, until... Uh, after world war ii but then it has eroded today after world war ii you had a huge commercialization of uh, scientific publishing um, and it has uh, evolved in the over a few decades uh, you had uh, you had bigger and bigger uh, publishers and today we have uh, you, we have uh, rather few big players out there and many many small players uh, but we have uh, the, the the commercialization of scientific publishing is a new phenomenon that started off after world war ii and has taken off even more in the last uh, two three decades so has the uh,
0: commercialization of of the publishing um, changed uh, science
1: yes it has it has changed the way we try to make a career um earlier there weren't that many uh, candidates around, uh, the scholarly communities within all disciplines were much smaller than today. I mean, things have really taken off, which is a good thing, but it has a downside that the competition has grown to such an extent that people are desperate to have uh, articles published. In many scientific disciplines, the, the journal article is the only way to get tenure, the you know, only way to get, uh, become a uh, professor. You need to publish a lot of articles. In this sense, it's good to have many uh, journals to publish in, but you can't just publish in any journal because that's, um, uh, that's not the case that you have only two or three journals anymore, which you perhaps used to have, so that people before World War II could publish a decent amount of work, but it would be in, distributed like 50 papers uh, over 10 years uh, distributed in two or three journals. That they had their own journals and not so much uh, diversity. But today there is lots of diversity, but you also have a hierarchy. And this hierarchy is a downside, I would say. Uh, it makes people look for the logo of the uh, journal instead of the content of the article very often. And,
0: and But do you see that as a result of the commercialization or is it just the result of there being more scholars and more information out there?
1: I think it's both. Um, But still, the way the incentive systems are run now in the new public management world is that not only you as an individual scholar, but also your university is getting a reward based on quantity not on quality. So if you have, let's say you have five postdocs, one of them writes one really good groundbreaking article publishes it in an open access journal. Many, many people read it and quote it. But still, uh, this particular postdoc will have problems getting a career compared to others that during t- three years publish 15 articles or co-publish 15 articles in, in high-ranking journals. You could say, oh, they work so much more, but I'm not convinced. It's, they work in a different way, and it's that different way that is being rewarded both by the university. The university sees, oh, they are really productive. They do things. But what they do is that they have uh, a huge quantity of articles out, but not necessarily that they help society develop in a good way. They don't necessarily make knowledge develop in a good way, because this focus on getting things published in the right journals is very often uh, it's it's overshadowing the uh, the thing that science should be about namely finding out things sharing your knowledge having a real impact on society so the whole idea of a journal impact factor is is sort of it um, erodes the entire meaning of a word like impact impact has to do with something else i would say impact has to do with having Knowledge spread and people adopting your knowledge and building upon your knowledge. That's real impact, not the journal impact factor, which is absurd in in that sense
0: but but you could argue that publishing in uh, one of the big uh, journals uh, has a higher quality and maybe you could actually reach out to uh, more of the more of the people who can actually apply that knowledge other scientists who follow that journal instead of the public you could argue that those scholars are more important to reach out to than the than a normal person who doesn't have anything to do with academia.
1: Well, I totally agree that in many cases, what you write in the cutting edge research is so specialized, it's so technical, that very few people can actually understand it and absorb it and build upon it. So of course, the specialized articles are not for the general public. That's, that's okay, that's a fair uh, argument. But still, those that make those kinds of arguments, they tend to be rather blind towards what they're doing every day. I mean, every day, the best professors out there, they have a crowd of PhDs and postdocs around them, and those are educated. And it's not the case that every person around such a huge uh, uh, research group get a job within academia. It's always a high percentage that goes out of academia and continues their life outside academia. They go, they become teachers, they become, uh, they work in the private industry. They work on making, um, new, um, new inventions in, uh, in the private or public sector, whatever. And of course those, if you claim that they can't read your research, then you're making an absurd claim in my view. If your former PhD, uh, students and your former postdocs that are outside of academia, will not be able to read what you write. Anyway, that's an absurd claim.
0: Um, But there are certainly different ways of communicating science than uh, journal articles uh, today with today's technology. You mentioned uh, social media. Could that uh, replace that whole thinking that, the journals are are the distribution of science.
1: Well, you're now asking me questions about the future, and as a historian, I'm not the best one to to answer. Um, Maybe I could draw some parallels in history, because there's always been different ways of going about with the sharing process. And there's always been a culture out there, and this culture is different in different scientific disciplines. One example could be astronomy. Uh, During the 18th century, you had a rapid growth in astronomy. Astronomy became a scientific activity that uh, grew from uh, around uh, the 1720s. There were 16 uh, observatories in Europe. Uh, In uh, around 1790, it had grown to more than 130. So you had so many people active in astronomy. and. Um, what they did was they shared everything they observed, basically. They they, they wrote letters to each other. They also had uh, journals. Pretty soon you had specific journals for astronomy. And those were often in the form of letters. I mean, I received this letter and they put it uh, in print immediately. So you had you had journals uh, for scientific news that came out uh, very often. But some people perhaps said, okay, I observed something really rare. I want to spend some time reflecting what I observed and comparing what I observed with others' observations, and then I can publish it as a real book, for instance. But then you could see people becoming sceptical. Why didn't you share immediately your research data? Why didn't you share immediately what you observed? Um, Why do you come two years later with a book? Is this just a fraud? Is it fabrication? Did you calculate something and and make some sensual uh, results? And this is, if we make this analogy, you could have, you have many people today that say everything that's going in, on in my research lab, it's, it's there, it's our property. We don't want to share it. We, we want to write all possible journal articles based on this data. Then perhaps in principle, we can share it after 10 years when nobody is interested anymore. But if you make this analogy with the astronomers of the 18th century, the culture of astronomy back then was everybody should share everything immediately. And they did so with the technology they had at hand. Why shouldn't we do so today? Why do we have systems that make you want not to share instead of want to share?
0: Um, But um, in a historical context, uh, I'm guessing we should also be grateful for the commercialization of uh, science and the large publishing houses because they have brought in... Uh, higher quality I guess uh, uh, back in the day I, they have changed science in in some ways I guess
1: well when you say commercialization I would say professionalization because running a journal uh, or publishing academic books is a profession it's it's something that should be done properly and all this, Quality checking, all these considerations on layout, they're really important. If you find a, something with a crappy layout, you're slightly more reluctant to spend time reading it, it, it compared to if it has an attractive layout. And things like that is is very important, but doesn't necessarily have to be commercialized through and through and have profit margins of 30 or 40 percent as we now hear that the biggest publishing houses have you can have it professionalized without that kind of commercialization side to it
0: so this kind of leads us up to open science and and uh, that kind of um, a time period we're in right now where we see a lot of discussion on open science Um, where do you see um, that discussion in a historical context is it a is it a return to to
1: old traditions or is it something completely new? Well, I like to think about it. It's it's perhaps not obvious, but the way I like to think about it is 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 this analogy in between uh, between manuscript and print in former times and uh, nowadays uh, between well, you could say um, behind paywall versus open access. Manuscripts were often sufficient if you have. Very small groups of scholars, and there used to be very few. Like one quotation that I, I really like is, is from a Danish uh, oriental philologist. He, he traveled in the uh, in the Middle East and he, he, he made a grammar of Ethiopian, but mostly he didn't publish anything. He, he was well established as a scholar. As pe- people knew about him uh, in the, the tiny, tiny community of oriental language uh, students, but he said, well, he spent his entire life uh, collecting manuscripts and he said, why on earth (laughs) would I communicate to others the knowledge that I have acquired with toil and sweat, with many costs and dangers? Why would I spend money on the post boys? He he, He didn't even want to communicate by letter what he had found. I mean, he, he said, this is my personal property. All these data that I've collected on various languages and manuscripts in various languages. He didn't want to share that. And back then it was, it was um, not very well received, this kind of statement, but still it was there. And if you look at it, we, we, we find it absurd that somebody could say, I'm a scholar, I, I'm one of the best in my field, but I don't publish anything. Today, well, it's cheeky to say it, but you have people saying, I'm one of the best in my field because I publish in these journals. And you say, can I see what you've written? Yeah, sure. Go to go to that journal, go to that journal, go to that journal, you'll see it all there. But you can't, unless you pay a lot of money. Why should I pay a lot of money to see what one of the, um, the best scholars in my field has written? But they insist, that's the way forward, to put it behind paywall. So that's not very good analogy, perhaps, but this uh, Theodore Petraeus in 1665, who said, why should I share what I've written? It's, is similar to today i say why should i share with the public what i've found out it's there but it's only the elite can read it because we're we put it behind paywalls where where only the the lucky few can can read it
0: so um so where do you see uh, open access as being because uh, i know you work a lot with uh, open access uh, here at the university um uh, where do you see that as a game changer in in that kind of uh, of a uh, um state of thinking.
1: Uh, Open access as a game changer. Usually people talk about it to to change the entire publishing industry, which is of course a huge task and there will be, uh, it's, it's not obvious that it will succeed in that way. But what I see with the concept of open access and how you communicate about it to your colleagues, to other researchers is to have this idea that people will realize that, okay, I need to make a career. I need to build my CV, but can I do it in ways that promote open access? To start this reflection is a very good start. To have people think, okay, so I published in this and that journal, but still they have this kind of a green open access. Um, there is an embargo period, but still I should upload it somewhere so that it will be, Online for everybody to read after a year or two years. To have people reflect on that and actually start acting in that way is one start. Um, And another starting point is to have them reflect well, there are perhaps 10 journals out there and two of them are open access, so it will be free to read for everyone. Why should I choose one of the eight others? Well, some of the eight others are um, the most prestigious. But if I really want, to spread what I've found. Perhaps I should, for this particular journal, uh, this particular article, perhaps I should make an exception and go for the gold open access journal. To have people reflect like that and Maybe they don't go all in for open access with, with no compromises. But if they start to make concessions that, okay, I don't need the prestigious uh, closed behind paywall journals for everything I do. Maybe I should have a proportion of what I do in gold open access and the rest I should start to have green open access or upload preprints or, or everything at once. I mean, go preprint, go postprint, go uh, go gold open access whenever you can. That To have this reflection is for sure a game changer. So I look mostly to the, the younger scholars. And um, it's hard often to, 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 um, to, to say this is the way forward. We know where the wind is blowing and we know how the future looks like. We don't. But we can start this reflection with the younger scholars so that they can um, be conscious about what they're doing when they're building their career without making this total concession of what the public expects from you as a state-funded scholar. The public expects something back and you should give something back. This doesn't mean that you should give everything back and have no career. That would be uh, absurd. But there are many misconceptions out there. And um, one of them is that we know what the future holds. But that is not just something that applies to us that advocate for open access. It also applies to those that advocate against it. They say it's always been like this. And for sure, it will look like this 10 years from now. Honestly, they don't know. And uh, the kind of situation we are in now with internet technology, which is really new, with giant publishers, publishing houses, um, it's really new. It's, it's just been there for this particular generation of professors that uh, grew up in this system. And even the best, uh, those that are more than 60 years old, they, they started off before the internet. So it's, it's really new and uh, things are changing really rapidly. So that's the most challenging thing is to say, well, we are in the transition phase. Uh, 10 years from now, things will look like this. I don't know that. Nobody else knows how it will look 10 years from now, but it's an exciting period. And the most important thing that we can tell younger scholars today is uh, be, uh, be conscious of what you're doing, reflect on what you're doing. And very often they know more than their supervisors about technology, about uh, new ways of publishing and efficient ways of publishing. And they shouldn't always go with what the supervisors tell them. They should be a little bit rebellious. That's what we advise them.
0: So a fun question to always ask a historian is, what can we learn from the history? Um, is there something you can draw parallels to to
1: today's uh, version of uh, publishing and scholarly publishing? The only constant factor in history is that we are humans, Uh, we are human beings, we are social beings, uh, we live in cultures, Uh, and the academic culture has, for centuries, had this aspect of um, vanity, which is very important to everybody. This means that we're we're sort of, our babies are publications or our findings, our, our new inventions, whatever, these are our babies and we want them to be seen and we want them to be praised. And this praise for our babies goes back to ourselves. So this vanity part, which we are all uh, part of, is um, that makes us look for prestige. And uh, often we find excuses. Um, we say, I need to publish behind this paywall. I need to go to this particular journal because it's the best quality. And people make these claims where they really have no scientific uh, reason to make this claim. Very often, if people look closely, the, the journals that are behind paywalls and the oldest ones, for sure there are lots of good quality articles there, really, really good research being published there, but so is there in the other journals. So there's no reason to go with the old prestigious one. Very often it's our own vanity that steers us in those directions. And that's a parallel, you could say, it's been there for centuries. And uh, that's one of the main issues that we all struggle with in the transition towards open access. How to make people see it as prestigious and good for their vanity part to publish open and to Publishing new venues of um, research uh, publications that don't have this old prestige attached to
0: them. Happy Post, it has been a pleasure. Likewise. Hi everyone, this podcast is produced by the University Library at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. If you have a request for an upcoming topic you want us to discuss on the podcast, Please let us know on our Twitter page at ubtrumso. Thanks for listening.